Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. <laughs> now I'm very self-conscious about it, just for the record. I love it. <laughs> But uh, our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tkumloops-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmakulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. And I don't really feel like that's going to come into play a huge amount in today's discussion, which is about All the Bright Places. Yes, by Jennifer Niven. And yeah, yeah, I don't know, Joe. I think between us, we've got pretty mixed feelings about the book and pretty negative feelings about the movie. Oh, super negative feelings about the movie. The movie was a hot garbage fire that I want to burn in like the fiery pits of Mordor. <laughs> so for people who don't like the negative episodes, thanks so much for downloading and um, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's been a fun two minutes and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> but for people who love the negative episodes, we have a lot of complaints. Yeah, we sure do. So before we move into this any further, I do just want to acknowledge that uh, we have a couple of folks to thank for unloading this on. <laughs> Joe literally texted me last night. Why do our listeners do this to us? <laughs> I'm interested. I mean, I'm going to put it right on the table. I did not care for either of these two texts, but I'm very curious to hear if other people did. So we're going to have a complete conversation about both the book and the movie. But I would like to hear, and I think specifically from the people who asked us if we were planning to cover this. So that would be listener Jess Wild, Becca Kruger, and frequent listener Andrew. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they enjoyed it, but they did ask us if we planned to cover this. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious specifically to hear about whether or not they enjoyed it and that was why they wanted to hear our thoughts on it, or if they found it was problematic and they wanted to hear our thoughts on it, or if they just noticed that it was dropping and said, hey, are you planning on doing something with this? And I think I should say off the top that I actually quite enjoyed the book. Not that I agree with all the choices and some of them I found a little problematic, but I found the book itself very compelling. And it was a, a speedy read for me and I was really engaged all the way through. But the movie disappointed the bejesus out of me. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think some of the interesting things that are happening in the book really get flattened in the film, which I know we've said before, but we'll say it again, probably. Very true. Yeah, I have thoughts about the film and I'll, I'll save them for when we get there. So why don't I start with a plot summary? Okay, do okay. it. So our protagonists are Theodore Finch and Violet Marquis. So Finch is an outcast at school, and he has had some emotional outbursts. He's also uh, got a lot of suicidal ideation and some behaviors, and he's struggling for sure when we meet him at the beginning of the book, um, which is a definite change in the film that I think is a problem, but I know we're not there yet. Sorry. <laughs> focus, focus. Violet is our other protagonist, Violet Markey, and she is part of the popular crowd at school, but she's really struggling emotionally. Uh, no one seems to know that, but her sister has died in an accident that she was 
in and survived. And so the two actually meet at the top of the bell tower at school. They're both mm-hmm. planning to jump off the ledge. Well, they're sort both planning of. to investigate the possibility of jumping off the ledge, maybe yes. more accurate. Yeah. And so that's how they meet. And really what ends up happening is that Finch, who's been in this kind of emotional place before, sort of realizes that Violet hasn't. And he talks her down. Mm-hmm. He talks her off the ledge. And they develop a friendship that's really kind of rooted in trauma, rooted in the fact that the only person who really talks to Violet about her sister is Finch. Mm-hmm. The only person who Finch opens up to about his depressions and periods of what we later in the book realize is sort of periods of mania mm-hmm. is Violet. And I won't say that he he's particularly not self-aware about what he's going through. And it's difficult for him because he's very scared of labels and the consequences of labels. And diagnosis isn't an option for him. Violet comes from a family that is very involved, but kind of emotionally distant. Finch's dad is abusive and has Mm -hmm. gone on to start what I fondly refer to as a franchise family. Oh, dear. (laughs) um, uh, His mother is horrible, but I don't know. There's a lot of empathy for the mom in the book that I find really interesting. Yeah. She's not equipped to care for anyone, not even really herself. And unfortunately, she has three children. Yeah, it's presented as such a weird situation, right? Like, she's not an uncaring mother. She's just an absent mother because she's literally trying to keep this household together. But in her absence, the entire household falls apart. Yeah, it's almost like, I don't think there's another choice for the mom in the book. And I struggled with that a bit, right? Because um, I want so badly for her to be more present. And also, like, she's just emotionally incapable of it. And also, like, financially, Mm -hmm. the family is struggling very, very much. Yes. And so Finch is in a really bad situation. There is just simply no support. And Violet and Finch develop something of a codependent relationship, as we've seen in so many YA stories before this one. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of their burgeoning emotional relationship, they end up staying out all night, one night. And... Mm -hmm. Unlike other books we've read recently where people stay out all night and no one seems to notice. <laughs> cough, cough. <laughs> the sun is also a star. Cough. <laughs> In this one, staying out all night has really serious consequences. Violet's yeah. parents, obviously having just lost a daughter, are on an emotional knife's edge. When she doesn't come home, they can't cope with it. Finch is sort of sent away from their family after having really quite bonded, I think, with her parents, which makes it all the more emotionally difficult for him. And so he has, this is the beginning of his downward spiral, which involves getting expelled from school, disappearing, reappearing, disappearing, reappearing. The only time he gets even close to accessing anything like support is when he takes a handful of sleeping pills, immediately regrets it, takes himself to the emergency room and gets his stomach pumped, but he escapes before he has to face any consequences for that. Yes, So because his mom isn't there Mm -hmm. and his dad would never care, Mm -hmm. there's only one other parental figure in his life apart from Violet's parents, and that's his guidance counselor at school, who Mm -hmm. is kind of sideways, backwards trying to diagnose him and Mm -hmm. gets pretty close. Like at one point he actually tells Finch, I think that you have manic depression. You have all these telltale signs and says like, 
I'm going to encourage you to go and get a doctor's test. I've left a message with your mother. Mm -hmm. The issue is that he and his sister Kate have developed this system where she will cover for him because he had a substantial absence in the previous semester that Mm -hmm. required him to make sure that he didn't get in trouble or expelled from school. So they've developed all these safety protocols that will allow them to intercept phone calls. And as a result, he just simply washes away Mr. Embryo. That's the nickname that he has for the guidance counselor. Mm -hmm. He just gets rid of that phone call. And as a result, the manic depression episodes that he's struggling with go unnoticed by everyone else. Exactly. And he does end up taking himself to like a suicide support group, sort of one town over. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where he meets one of the other popular girls who kind of makes his life miserable and discovers that she is also struggling. Yes. But instead of that being kind of the thing that pulls him out of his spiral, he ends up running away from home. Just after that, there's a big fight with Violet. He sends some cryptic text messages and then eventually emails everyone he knows with these very clear farewell yeah. messages. Yeah, there's a couple of moments where you just really have to suspend your disbelief in the book. Like, when people get those messages and they're all, hmm, what do you think this means? Mm -hmm. Like, what is wrong with you people? Yeah. And I I said, what is wrong with you people? A lot when I read this book. It's a very frustrating book because, again, it's another book where the supports that are clearly necessary are just not forthcoming. And on the one hand, I know that that's a very real experience of a lot of kids, like a really Mm. upsetting number of kids. And also, it's so hard to read because you just want so badly for an adult to adult. And no adulthood is forthcoming in this book. Basically, in a panic, Violet figures out that he has taken himself to a place they visited together and drowned. And his family is therefore able to just say, oh, it was an accident and never actually deal with the fact that, well, frankly, they really let him down (laughs) over and over again. Yeah, they just get to kind of have a good cry about it. And strangely enough, even Violet's parents then blame Finch's Mm -hmm. mom for bringing Violet into it without actually addressing the fact that a boy has died. Yes, although holy cow, one of the most inappropriate, inappropriate parenting moments we've read has got to be when Finch's mom asks a teenage girl to go and identify a body for her. Oh, yeah, because she can't handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... um. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) And it's interesting because I think the end of the book is actually quite fascinating. So the end of the book is about Violet's recovery. Like the book doesn't end with the suicide. No. The book ends with the after for Violet. And I guess we should say that Jennifer Niven talks very openly in the afterward about the autobiographical aspects of this book. Mm -hmm. She is the Violet. She is the Violet that she had lost a boyfriend to suicide when she was a teenager and the ramifications of that she didn't realize until she was much older the fact that there is something called survivor's guilt survivor's guilt and that when someone near you dies by suicide there's very much an experience of like you're a victim too in a way like you're surviving Mm -hmm. something too and i really liked those pages as violet works through some of those emotions and i liked that i felt like it was on the one hand she's looking for someone to tell her that it wasn't her fault and yet that's never really forthcoming and it's interesting the reason i bring this up is because the wikipedia says 
The book ends when Violet is convinced that Finch's suicide was not her fault. And I super don't think that actually happens in the book. No. I mean, she definitely does blame herself and she comes to a realization that there was a bit of an inevitability yes. because Finch was never receiving the care that he needed. He didn't have the guidance that would shepherd him away from that decision. But I think she comes to peace is the wrong word. She finds a way to live with what she has been through. Yeah, there's a kind of closure, not acceptance, though. No, not acceptance. And I actually think like part of what the book is about is about the fact that in real life, you don't really ever get that, you know? No. And it never goes away. And it never goes away. As Niven has clarified in the afterword, like she still struggles with it. It's one of the reasons she wrote the damn book. I guess for me, the book is not perfect. And there are so many points where, yes, you do stretch disbelief with the way people behave around Finch. And the, the, the recurring motif is that he has disappeared so many times that the people closest to him are just like, Merp, he's disappeared. Yeah, very much so. And yet, I think, I guess what I like so much about the book is that it is primarily a story of survival. Like, you started the book thinking that it's going to be Finch's story. And then when he disappears and the narrative becomes exclusively Violet's, it becomes the story of survival. Yeah, I don't know. So when I was in grade six or grade eight, my uncle died by suicide. Mm-hmm. And I think I've talked about it briefly on the show before, but I've briefly, never really yeah. read a book that dealt meaningfully with what it feels like to survive an experience like that as right. a young person. Because there are books about it, but like 13 Reasons Why is just a garbage dump, right? Because it's just like solve the mystery of the one reason why she did this thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is basically like, follow these clues to decipher suicide. And you're just thinking, this is, oh, no. Yeah. Whereas in this book, I don't think it's perfect. And I think there is an element of, there's an element of ableism here, right? Like, there's certainly an element of, like, the mentally ill people in our lives are here to teach us lessons about life, right? Gross. And the movie does that. Way too much, yeah. It's disgusting in the film. Mm Mm-hmm. But I liked the ambiguity of Violet's feelings at the end. I guess that's where I'm at with the end of the book. Okay. Yeah, I frankly was surprised to hear that you enjoyed this as much as you did. Part of my struggle was the frustrating nature, like seeing all of the really obvious signs that Finch was so clearly struggling and just having no one in his life care enough about him to actually even pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but I don't excuse the teenagers either. No. Like, he supposedly has friends, and they do what you mentioned. Like, oh, well, he'll just be back in a couple of weeks. It's not a big deal. And I just, I can't imagine having friends that I cared so little about mm-hmm. that I would ever allow that to happen. Maybe that's too personal a reaction. The other thing that bothered me... I'll do a list and you can tell me which ones you want to talk about. Okay, deal. (laughs) There's too much of an element of manic pixie dream boy and girl in both of these texts. I think we need to talk about that for sure. Yeah, because the codependency that you mentioned, it goes beyond that. It's a place of this person will save me because Mm -hmm. I'm not enough by myself. So I didn't care a great deal for that. Some of the moments are... They're captured in such a way as they're almost deliberately manipulative. 
like the wandering that the two characters do because Benji uses a school project mm. to spend time with Violet by saying like we're gonna get you back into a car that you haven't done because your sister died and you haven't processed that so he takes her to all these various places around Indiana which they call wandering and they have all of these great experiences but they feel like made for mm. movie passages where I was like oh I can envision what these will look like in the inevitable film version this might be a good place to say that Niven is frequently compared with John Green yes. and it's exactly those set pieces where I feel like I'm reading a John Green book yeah mm-hmm. and to be honest I think that was the other piece this felt like a mishmash of other books that we've read John Green a little bit of it's kind of a funny story a little bit of Perks of Being a Wallflower. And I have to say, you know, you said I really appreciate how much Violet processes. And I would actually counter by saying, I think Perks of Being a Wallflower is the better version of this book. Yeah, I think that's fair. I don't disagree with anything that you've said there. Okay, well, episode over then. (laughs) (laughs) No, let's, let's talk about the manic stuff. Yeah, we have to talk about the manic pixie dream girl and boy stuff. And I think... It's a danger in so many YA romances. Mm-hmm. So many of them take this tack that like, if you find the right person in your trauma, they will fix you. I mean, yeah. we've seen it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again since we started the podcast. You betcha. And I think part of what makes it particularly egregious here is that they are equally looking to be rescued. Mm-hmm. And so from an adult perspective, we read this and go, well, this is going to end horribly. <laughs> This is true. There's a sense of inevitability and doom that hangs over this entire book. Yeah. And I think that's, again, why I felt so frustrated that no one else seems to pick up on it. I'm like, the minute you meet while you're contemplating suicide, there is only one way out. I think I actually saw some reviews that said, oh, I was really surprised that he ends up dying by suicide at the end. And all I could think of was, which text did you read? (laughs) And I don't mean that in a mean-spirited way. It's just, to me, it was so obvious that one or possibly both of them would be dead by the end of the book. Don't you think that's a bit of an adult perspective, though, that we're bringing to it? Like this sense of teenager cannot be the therapist to another teenager. And Mm. we sort of see that it can do nothing but spiral negatively. And that's not to disparage teenagers, by the way. I saw that. Did you see that tweet that went viral this week, Joe? And it was like, if you have a good marriage, your spouse is your therapist. Ew. And everybody was like, ew, what? It was one of those, you know, the main character on Twitter this week is this guy. (laughs) This person, but they're wrong, wrong hot take. Yeah, Terrible hot take. But it's this idea that all humans do that a little bit, like cling to other humans as life preservers. Right. And this is definitely a book about how that fails. And I think in that way, Hmm. it's actually good. I mean... Okay. By the end of the book, there is no glamorization of this idea that you can just cling to another person to save yourself because it doesn't work for either of them. Oh, see, I think we take that away, but I feel like there's a lot of people who still like that Wikipedia entry feel like you side with Violet that, oh, you know, she has grown and become a better person because she had Finch in her life and he really saved her. He helped her to overcome the grief of losing her sister, Eleanor. Mm. And I'm like, no. No. He just happened to be the only person who actually listened to what you were feeling. Because I find her parents sort of fascinating in that they're clearly like nice middle class white parents. 
I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. else is listening to the Nice White Parents podcast from the serial folks right now, but no. they had nice white parents written all over them. It's sort of about the way like nice white parents in their desire to protect their individual children, like wreak havoc on the social safety net for everyone else. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes so much sense. And it's also terrible. <laughs> right. And so I had a lot of shades of that because they will protect Violet, but they... I mean, do they ever do more than make like two phone calls to to help Finch, even though they they clearly oh. know something's wrong? Yeah, I know. I kept thinking like, does anybody want to get in a car and go <laughs> looking? Like, I think Kate takes off at one point. Yes, and, and goes looking. That's it. Yeah. There is no mention of calling the police. No. There is no mention of filing a missing persons. No. I mean, I don't know that that would have made a difference, and I I think part of that would have just caused unnecessary complexity and maybe muddy the waters of what Niven is trying to do but at the same time there were so many things where I just thought what kind of fantasy world are we living in where these adults don't care about teenagers going missing for weeks it's almost like the amount of sort of just overwhelm that Finch's mom experiences just like getting out of bed in the morning means Mm -hmm. that she just can't take anything else on and you know, I've had I have had that experience with people in my life where it's like you're trying to tell them that something serious is up and they can't hear it. Yeah, cuz it's just one thing too it's many. It's one thing too many, but I mean it's so painful that it's Finch's mother, right? Like it's so painful to read. Yeah. Yeah. I struggled with that a lot just because yeah, on the one hand to me that stretches the bounds of believability and on the other hand I know it's there's somehow kids for so whom relatable. That's their real experience, you know? Like, I know yeah. that that exists. I don't know. To me, the, what's special about this book is not the set pieces. They're really, really trite. <laughs> not the Manic Pixie Dream stuff, because it's like the worst bits of The Fault in Our Stars, but yeah. page on page on page. And that doomed lover kind of conceit as well. Mm-hmm. But I just, I liked Violet. <laughs> and I liked her arc. And I liked the ambiguity that maybe I'm the only person who sees in those final pages. I don't know. (laughs) It's possible. Here's the thing. I'm not going to try to take that away from you because I don't disagree with you, but I just didn't, I didn't feel as much of it as you. And Mm -hmm. I would even say that I preferred the nuance of something like looking for Alaska to something like this, where... Mm. I think there's more complexity. I think too much of Violet and her journey for Finch afterwards, it's still too much of a MacGuffin for me. Mm. It's if I can only find this magical person and her life just becomes about him until the very end when it's like, he sent me on a couple of additional wanderings and I came to this church and I see his letter and now things are okay. And I'm just like, but are they? Literally nothing has changed. No, maybe I misread the ending. The one character arc in Violet's story that I really liked was her basically making her parents talk about her sister. Oh, that was the part that worked the best for me. Yeah. 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 I yeah. really liked that scene. And mm-hmm. um I nearly teared up. That was the closest I got to feeling some kind of emotion <laughs> in this book. <laughs> it's a good scene. It's a really good scene. And it's a good scene too because, you know, it's not spurred by like Finch taught me how to live my life and I'm confronting my parents. It's spurred mm-hmm. by like there's all these things that I never I'm going to get to say to Finch and I'm never going to get to say them to my sister and I'm going to stop being silent, right? And I yeah. really dug that. Okay, so I feel like I'm deliberately combative. 
I apologize. I don't mean to be this way. <laughs> How much stronger would the book have been if it had have ended there? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that at all. To me, that was her that was her most important moment of growth. And I like that yeah. it's divorced from this sort of manic pixie dream. It's okay to be deeply troubled and feel extreme pain as long as someone else in your life learns a lesson from it. Yeah. <laughs> a terrible message and a terribly ableist message. Yes. And maybe a good time to transition to the film because that's all the damn film was about. You betcha. <laughs> Are you looking at Violet Markey? Yep. Her sister died, right? For your class project, you must report on two or more wonders of Indiana. Can we choose our partners? For my geography class, this teacher wants us to do this project with a partner. I just don't want to do it. Well, maybe it's time to get back out there. What do you want from me? I think it would be good for you to get out. Maybe I don't want to get out. You might end up loving it. No, I won't. Two wanders. That's all. Serious question. What are you most afraid of? Being ordinary. So don't be ordinary. What's going on with you? You seem like goofy. What are you looking at? It's a kid on my lawn. You know what I like about you, Ultraviolet? Don't need what? You're all the colors in one, at full brightness. You know people call you the freak, right? Sometimes I get into these dark moods. Did you look into that support group I told you to check out? I want you to think about it. I need to do things that remind me that I'm in control. People don't like messy. We're different. All right, so the movie version of All the Bright Places came out earlier this year on Netflix. It is directed by Brett Haley, who ironically enough directed one of the episodes of Looking for Alaska, the TV show. Oh, yeah, and he's got another, um, I saw he's got another um, YA adaptation that we might want to check out at some point. Must we? I mean, sure, yes, let's do that. <laughs> Joe, it's got a title you're going to love. It's called The Heart Beats Loud. Okay, and let's just play YA bingo with that because it could be about <laughs> anything. Yep. Okay, so this... <laughs> He's also going to be directing the prequel to Greece called Summer Lovin'. Okay, I'm out. I'm tapping out. <laughs> Do you want to hear about his film, I'll See You in My Dreams? Brenna, please, just stop. Stop. These are real titles of things he's made. No, they're not. They're post-it <laughs> notes that he found in Finch's bedroom. <laughs> oh, that's so mean. Oh, my God. <laughs> So this Okay, one film... more though. One more. Oh, one more. No. His next film. His next film is called All Together Now. <laughs> I can't. I just what are we even talking about right now? Oh sorry. I mean, okay, as if the on. title All the Bright Places isn't fing <laughs> bad enough. <laughs> Why not all the blue places? Why not all the church places? I only make cliches as films, that's my role in life. I mean, I hope that's his, the title of his autobiography. <laughs> Cliché films. The Brett Haley story. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> this film was written by Liz Hanna, but also Jennifer Niven. Did that surprise you when you saw it in the credits? It shocked me. Okay, because I saw on IMDb, I looked this up in advance because I was like, yay, Elle Fanning. Yay, Justice Smith. Two people that we quite like. Mm-hmm. 
And I saw on the IMDb page, it says writers, Liz Hanna, comma, Jennifer Niven, bracket, novel. So I thought, oh, okay, so she's not involved in this. She just wrote the novel. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm watching the movie and I'm on the verge of plucking out my own eyes because I'm just so frustrated, the screen credit comes up and it says, and Jennifer Niven. I'm like, what in the mother F? So weird. How do you misadapt your own source material so freaking badly? I don't understand. I don't understand it. I just don't get it. It makes no sense. Okay. So this film is filled with people that we like. In addition to Elle and Justice, we have Alexandra Shipp, who plays Kate. That is Finch's sister. She's great. She has nothing to do. It's a terrible character. We have Virginia Gardner as Amanda. That is Violet's former best friend, who in the film is just a friend of hers that she doesn't really talk to. Yeah, it's very weird. It's There's absolutely no relationship or anything tying them together. And then they have a confessional final moment. I Oh, my. Okay. When she shows up in the therapy and she and Finch have this moment and then she has a moment with Violet and you're like, Who are Who you? is this? I don't even... <laughs> Do you even go here? Yeah, she doesn't even go here. (laughs) And then finally, we have Felix Millard as Romer, who is Violet's former boyfriend. He is an amalgamation of two characters from the book. So Romer is the school bully who tortures Finch. And then Violet also has a very kindly ex-boyfriend that she just does not want to spend time with anymore and he has been alighted into a single character for the film which i actually think is probably a good creative decision because clearly the film doesn't know what to do with any of these people so having an additional character would (laughs) Would be extra bad yeah would have been yeah and then we have parents luke wilson is the famous person he plays violet's dad james Mm -hmm. and the mom is someone named kelly o'hare who i did not recognize And we have Keegan-Michael Key as Embry, aka Mr. Embryo. I wanted him to get more to do. I really did want him to get more to do. More than just at the end, that like nice knowing glance, like, yeah, Yeah. that kid who killed himself, I definitely didn't do anything to help, (laughs) which is the look he gives her at the end of the movie. I tried so hard when I gave him that pamphlet. (laughs) That was all I could do. And look, I'm not saying anyone should ever feel responsible as someone in their life. (laughs) No, but he tried nothing. (laughs) Everyone is trying 1% in this film. In the film version in particular, I cannot overstate how much I kept thinking, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Yeah. Everybody just walks around being like, I don't know, I guess, I guess Finch has Mm -hmm. to die because none of us can think of a single thing to do. No. But we sure are capable of going for lunch. Oh my god. (laughs) This is arguably one of the worst adaptations I think we've covered. And I'm not even being hyperbolic because I think it so badly misconstrues anything positive about the book. Yes, especially the ending. Like the last like seven minutes of this movie are some of the worst seven minutes of my cinematic life. (laughs) It's genuinely baffling. I spent a lot of the runtime of the film because I just couldn't care. So I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out whether this film would work for people who hadn't read the book. I don't see how. Yeah, I also don't know. So we should tell people that like there's this big change at the opening of the film. 
Yes, and it's a dramatic change because it completely affects the entire way that the film will proceed. So rather than having these two characters meet at the bell tower and be publicly identified together by the entire student body and have that be like a misconception that carries throughout the rest of the text, here... Finch is just late night running and he happens to see Violet standing on the bridge where her sister died. And I was like, oh, okay, this kind of makes sense. She goes back to the spot where she has suffered the trauma and she thinks about ending her own life. Except the problem is is it's the middle of the night. No one sees them and he is not suicidal. Yes. So it's a happenstance event. But then the rest of the film spends time being like, no, he's actually the one with the problem, and she was never suicidal. That's what the film has to spend the entire rest of the movie trying to figure out why it made that choice at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it's like, oopsie, we made a problem. Let's spend 80 minutes retconning it desperately and failing to do so. weird. And there's this scene basically where... Because what happens in the book is that everybody thinks that Violet talks Finch down that day when really the opposite has happened and there's a scene in the book when everything feels lost and like she doesn't know if she's ever going to see finch again she confesses to her parents that wasn't how it happened Mm -hmm. that he's the one who talked her down that she had been suicidal that day yes and it's the first step in her really having candid conversations with her parents like that's Mm -hmm. the baby step exactly and so in the film there's this very weird scene where she and luke wilson who doesn't act like a father at all so it's just he's just luke wilson in the movie he's a strange man who happens to live in her house (laughs) it's very odd she has this moment where she's like yeah dad i was gonna jump i was standing there and i was gonna jump and he talked me down and the dad goes well i'm glad he was there it's the equivalent of a shoulder shrug and she goes me too and then he goes were you and she says no so like (laughs) Yeah. It's bizarre. It's bizarre to open a film with a character on the Mm -hmm. verge of a suicide and then spend the entire rest of the movie trying to tell you that actually she's fine. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. also that you should be desperately worried about Finch because he's actually the one. It's like, ha ha, no, you thought wrong because of (laughs) the decision that we made. If you hadn't read the book, it would it's solidly halfway into the movie before you realize that Finch is in any kind of trouble. Yes. Yeah. Because he just seems like a bit of a wackadoodle guy who's interested in this damaged girl. Mm-hmm. He's a bit of a plucky outsider. Like, I could have seen this character being Victor's best friend on Love, Victor. Yes. Like, oh, he's just a little bit of a weirdo, but he's not a creep. He's not a psycho. He's not throwing deaths at anybody. Even though all of those things are said, Mm -hmm. they are literally verbalized by characters in this film. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Doesn't fit with that character at all. (laughs) No. Do you remember how when we talked about um, The Fault in Our Stars and we were talking about the kind of bait and switch, if you hadn't read the book and you're watching the film, that because you don't get a lot of foreshadowing of Gus's illness. And mm-hmm. so the sense of like, oh, the guy who was we thought was healthy is actually not healthy. And now I'm right. more sad, right? Because yeah. I'm going to lose two characters or I thought I was going to lose one. I thought that's what they were going for. Right. Yeah, because that maybe would have been smart. <laughs> But then, of course, there's no follow through of that because it would require change in the end of the the book entirely. I just, I don't know. This this film was very messy. Yeah. 
Can we talk about the other big, 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 big change that I think hurts this movie so much? Go. So Finch doesn't have parents. Yeah, Finch doesn't have parents. So the dad is completely gone. He does appear in the funeral with his new family. Oh my god, I didn't even no lines. That. It's right in the corner. Yeah, you could see the dad and this other woman and this little boy off to the side. Oh god, so I guess they shot all that stuff and never used it then, probably. No, I'm willing to bet that they were just like, oh, well, he has to have a dad, so we should at least cast some extra. So we don't have any of that. Like, in the book, this is a main feature. Finch and his two sisters have to go for Saturday or Sunday dinners at their dad's, and the dad is abusive, but he likes to put on this fake show that he is now a happy family man. Yeah, that he's got his right family. It's really gross. It's really gross, but it's important because Finch sees himself in this new stepbrother that he has, and tries to reach out in anticipation of the problems that that boy will have but it also gives you insight into why finch is a damaged individual yes totally because you know he didn't find the love that he was looking for from his father figure and also he literally bears the brunt of the scars yes and that's like a recurring thing and you actually get that like there's a moment in the film where violet goes how'd you get that scar and i was just like No, you can't introduce this when you're not willing to put in the time to investigate that. And the thing is, in the books, it's another example of just how disconnected his mother is because Mm -hmm. she packs them up and sends them off every Saturday dinner or Sunday dinner or whatever it is. And everybody knows it's horrible for her. Everybody knows she just sits at home and basically drinks red wine the whole time they're gone. Yeah. Everybody knows that Finch has been subject to wild, wild abuse by this man, and yet his mother is still pining for him. Like Mm -hmm. you get from those scenes so much understanding of why there is only silence in this family. Yes. I could have done with more. Yeah, I agree. Totally. It could have been developed more, but to have none of it in the film. And then the other thing is that we never see his mother. No, but she's not dead or anything. He just says, my mom's gone a lot. Yes. Pacut. What? (laughs) It's so baffling. They can't even cast an actress. I think, again, we see an actress, like a day player extra in the funeral scene, gets no lines. So they give all the mom stuff to Kate, the Alexandra Ship character, which is confusing because if you haven't read the book, you think that she's a young mom for like the first 20 minutes. More than that. Yep. And guess what? Like Alexandra Ship does not look old enough to have a teenage son. Nope. Oh, can I just say, while we're talking about ages of characters, like, Justice Smith is extremely handsome man. Mm-hmm. And he, for the most part, looks like a teenager. He's 25 when they shot this. Okay. But there's a scene where he takes off his shirt, and he's just so hairy. Mm. A skinny, like a skinny boy who's that hairy. I was just like, oh, this is clearly a 25-year-old man. Like, wow, that happened fast. I will defend the fact that there were some boys who had like five o'clock mustaches in yeah. grade seven. Yeah. So there is the possibility that you can have a substantial amount of, you know, face, chest, back, whatever at a younger age. But yeah, there's there's definitely a couple points where <laughs> L. Banning and Justice Smith just, they look solidly mid-20s. Yeah. Yep. You're like, okay, we're, what are these college kids doing in this high school scene? <laughs> yeah, just... The sheer problems that this film has 
just as an L have no romantic chemistry at all. None. 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 They don't even have like a friendship vibe. So I wouldn't believe this is a sibling story. <laughs> no. They look like they never had a conversation before they showed up to film. Yeah, it's um it's baffling. Because they're both great, so I don't get it. I <sighs> Yeah, I like Justice Smith more than I like Elle mm. Fanning. I mm -hmm. do find that Elle Fanning tends to gravitate towards these slightly mopey girls. Yeah, she likes to hide behind those glasses. Uh, okay, let's talk about the glasses, Brenna. Because <laughs> in the book, she wears glasses because they are Eleanor's. And yes. they are a way to feel closer to her sister, but also to hide. And I was going to say also to hide because she can't actually see the world clearly. Yeah, on the nose, Nevin. On the nose. <laughs> Literally on the nose because she's wearing them. <laughs> and then in this film, she's just wearing these oversized granny glasses like she just got them from what? Urban Outfitters. And they're super fetch, and they're kind of ironically like grandmother chic, but that's why she wears them. Mm -hmm. Not because they're Eleanor's, that is literally not a plot point, so it's just a costuming character decision. And you're like, bah-why, bah-why. Bah-why. <laughs> like, so much of this film is bah-why. Why did you do this? Why did you make this decision? They rearranged the order of the wanderings for, for no, no good, good reason. reason. No good they reason. They include some, but get rid of others. I did no look it up, reason. Joe, and most of those are real places in Indiana. That is kind of cool. I know. That was kind of the one thing that I like about you love the a road story trip. as a principal. I love the idea of going and finding something beautiful in the mundane. Also, and I love to travel within the city. We've talked before about how bad my American geography is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I definitely did not get the gag about the highest place in Indiana until I saw it in the film. Oh, no, Brenna. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm terrible at geography, too, but even I got that it was, I was like... like, surely it's going to be at least on a hill. I've never lived anywhere actually flat. I don't think my brain can process it conceptually. This is fair. If people follow you on Instagram, they will see that you are on the opposite of flat right now. The very opposite of flat. <laughs> Hey, that's the title of your autobiography. <laughs> Do you know I have to adjust my recipes now for high-altitude baking? Wow. I know. How does that affect your sourdough proofing? Um, you need more water, usually. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That was actually a facetious kind of I know it was, but I knew the answer, so I told it to you. <laughs> wow. Didn't you school me? <laughs> oh, are we, uh... I don't want to talk about this movie anymore. I was going to say, are we done? <laughs> this was... <laughs> Like a one-star like movie for me. I was like, if I wasn't discussing this on a podcast for people, I would have turned this garbage off. The only thing I don't think we actually talked about is the fact that the end of the film is a monologue from Violet where she talks about how it's good, actually, that Finch is dead because she's learned oh, how to live. It's so yeah. ableist. It's so bad. <laughs> when I tell people that I host a YA adaptation podcast i get looks from certain people that just say oh you poor sad little man <laughs> you know what garbage you must be reading and watching and i think actually no a lot of these texts have tons of interesting fascinating complex characters and situations and then i have to walk all of that back when i talk about all the bright places 2020 <laughs> <laughs> 
we've we've done some bad ones and this is this i mean i'm not gonna pretend like this is the worst thing i've ever seen in my life but particularly as an adaptation it's an absolute colossal failure i need to do a deep dive and find out how niven justified this adaptation because it's mind-boggling to me but also just yeah as you said like that ableist cherry on this disaster movie is so discouraging and it's all the tropey nonsense that I feel embarrassed about when I say that I read and watch YA. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Hated it. Yeah. That's why I bingo this mother. Let's do it. Bingo. Not a good bingo. Okay, Joe. So it's bingo time. Right. But we're starting a brand new book. So this is chapter one of book three. And, you know, we've even gotten some flack recently about how this bingo card is not accurate. So... I think we should just wipe it clean. We should wipe it clean because technically a bingo grid is five by five. And so I think what we're going to do is something we started to do at the beginning of book two, which is we took suggestions for things people wanted to see on the bingo card, right? Correct. Yes, we did. So this week, we're going to name a couple of things that we're going to put on this bingo card. And we're going to invite you to let us know on Twitter on the hashtag HKHSPod. Let us know what you'd like to see us add to the card this time. But Mm -hmm. Joe, it does mean you have to be okay with going a couple of weeks without a line. Yes. Because you can't put our suggestions on the card in a line. That would be stacking the deck. (laughs) Fair enough. Noted. Okay, so my two suggestions for this book, Joe, are ableism, because I think we should do a better job of calling it out on the show. I like it. I mean, I don't like it, but I like the idea of calling it out. Yep. And something we haven't talked about enough, because it's everywhere, Manic Pixie Dream girls and boys. And why don't we just say Manic Pixie Dream people to be (laughs) non-binary? There we go. Okay. Okay. What do you want to add to the card? So I've noticed that we do have a fair number of these teens who will tackle a road trip. So I was thinking maybe we would add a road trip. Great. We're going to be ready to do more John Green then. There's always a road trip. (sighs) We've talked about this, (laughs) Brenna. So I will add road trip. And then I think one of the other ones, and I'm going to workshop this because I don't think it's great, but I want to do something that's an acknowledgement of a diversity flip in the casting. So we haven't talked about it. The character of Finch is actually a white blonde boy in the book. And then, of course, he has been diversity flipped in the film to be a black teenager. So I don't love the term. No, it's extremely bad, but we'll think of something better. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm soliciting recommendations on how to make that a better bingo square. Diversity flip sounds like something that they would have done in Bring It On to like get extra points. Right. Yes. <laughs> that really tricky, complicated cheerleading move, the diversity flip. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to think of something better. Please write in if you have ideas for the card or something better than diversity flip. You know, I broke my toe doing the diversity flip back <laughs> in grade school. I once knew a woman named Diversity Flip. All right, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so while we're talking about how to get in touch with us, maybe we'll do that first. So hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters. I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, how do they find you? I am at Beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. 
And if you've got something longer, maybe a list of things you want to see on the bingo card, maybe you even want to make suggestions that are like texts that we could cover for purposes of the bingo card. Uh, it's hkhspod at gmail.com. Yes. And speaking of things to come. Joe, I'm so excited for our next big book. Yes, so our next big book is going to be... Son of a Trickster by Eden Robinson, which means we are finally getting some more Canadian film, and we are finally getting some more Indigenous lit, and we're finally getting to do both at the same time! Quick correction, it's not a film, because of course we're now covering the TV series. That's right. So we're actually getting even more Indigenous content, because if it was a film, it'd be shorter. That's true. We think it's eight episodes and we've got about four to watch and talk about, right? This is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably try to keep the discussion slightly non-spoilery. We'll mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. So we're going to watch the episodes that we have, but the episode's going to drop relatively early in the TV show's run. So the TV show comes out on October 7th on CBC if you are listening here in Canada and hopefully it will be coming soon to other countries because I have a feeling this will be snapped up. I'm sure it will. It looks amazing. If you haven't seen the trailer yet, oh my god, go watch it. It's so good. Mm-hmm. I've watched the first episode as of this recording and I quite liked it. Yay! I'm excited. And for our mini-sode next week, we're going to do the thing that we have not done for most of book two which is an author interview brenna yay an author interview an author interview with a particularly cool author by the way yeah so we had the opportunity to sit down and talk to none other than meredith russo (laughs) so exciting (laughs) i'm not gonna lie maybe it's just something about like our trans writer guests but like this conversation filled me with so much joy It's just chock full of amazing, witty anecdotes. Meredith is such a great, vibrant guest. She has flawless politics, let's just say. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Let's just say she kept me on my toes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so that's going to be our mini-sode next week, an interview with Meredith Russo. Fantastic. So that's us, and welcome to book three, everybody. Thanks so much for sticking with us this long. Joe, I can't believe we've been making this podcast for like three years. Well, yeah, I guess we're coming up on the start of our third year. Yeah. Our second anniversary and our start of our third year. Whoa. So cool. We old. We'd be graduating high school. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye. 